but I'd love to see if we could incorporate smaller chunks of just-in-time learning. Not the just-in-case, which we do in our eight hours of CLE, but saying, like, here's where you can go to get a question answered. Here's that chunk of information, and it's still going to help you meet your competency requirements. But again, it isn't tied to that, you know, credit hour. I'd also love to see us be able to move into a place where learning is more personalized. None of us have really mastered the way to deliver the content that people need exactly at the time they need it. I think that's a partnership that we need to enter between programs and publications. And we need to do it in a way that meets both sets of our requirements that we have in terms of delivering content and doing it, again, in a way that's personalized. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. This episode is what I'm calling a special edition episode. I just arrived back from another amazing meeting at the Association for Continuing Legal Education, also known as ACLIA. This, by the way, for anyone who's not familiar, is a conference that occurs twice a year and is the place to be for great minds responsible for the education, training, and professional development of lawyers around the world. Today, we have Aklia's past president with us. She just ended her impactful term in July 2022. She is also the director of publications at the Colorado Bar Association. Please welcome Kristen Otari. Kristen, I am so excited. We actually just saw each other in Vancouver not too long ago. So it's really nice to see your face again. I wanted to just first and foremost ask you, why did you become involved in ACLIA in the first place? Around 2007, I was at the State Bar of Wisconsin, and we had an executive director who was very pro us joining national organizations. He thought it was good for our own organization, and he also thought it was good for our professional development. So he really encouraged me to join ACLE, and it was always the hot ticket in our department is who got to go, because as a nonprofit, usually we could only send two people. So I ended up volunteering to speak, and that was at Vancouver in 2009. That was when I started to really grow myself professionally. Being able to speak publicly is an important skill for a lot of us. We don't always get that opportunity, but Ackley is a good place to sort of cut your teeth in that regard. I agree. When I first started becoming a member of Aclia, I attended a few sessions and then I expressed interest in co-chairing the programming SIG, which for anyone who doesn't know, that is the special interest group, a group of people that are all responsible for creating the CLE programs and making sure that they're of the best quality and that they align with the accreditation requirements. And that was my first time leading a group and my first time speaking in sessions about my work as well. And I was so grateful that ACLIA provided me with that opportunity. Exactly. And one of the other important pieces, I think, too, is that support has to come from above. I've been in other situations where my upper leadership may not have been quite so supportive. And that made it really difficult. So I think if you can get that buy-in from the people above you and explain and show how important it is for your own development, but then also how much you bring back for the organization, because without their support, it makes it really hard to volunteer. Do you have any examples of ways that other individuals within this industry or other industries looking to do something similar, how would they go about getting that buy-in? One of the 
ways is to make sure that after you get that chance to attend something for the first time that you follow up and you share with your team and with leadership what you learned. So as you're sitting through that conference, be mindful of certain hot things that you think they would be interested in. Also, get in touch with the vendors and the exhibitors because I have found a number of solutions to problems that we had back in our shop by talking to the exhibitors who were there. In terms of getting that chance to go for the first time, probably it's best if you show that you're committed to the organization for the long haul, that it's a place where you want to grow and learn and what you'll be giving back to them. You know, we can only put so much information in the session descriptions, so you might have to dig a little deeper. But if you reach out to your special interest group, they'll be more than happy to give you talking points of what you're going to get out of that particular conference with the idea that you'll bring that information back to your decision makers. Great advice. So for first-time attendants, show commitment and understanding of the organization and what you think that your attendance is going to bring to both you professionally as well as to the organization that you work for. And then once you're in, to maintain buy-in, making sure that when you come back from these conferences to share the insights that you got, how that could potentially help the organization. One of the biggest things that I did, uh, and I still do after every conference, is I write a bunch of notes throughout the conference on pieces of paper, and then I gather them all together and I write a one-pager to our executive leadership saying, these are all the things I learned, and they take it to their teams as appropriate. And I've always found that to be a really great way to continue the buy-in as well. That's, you said that so succinctly. And of course, it's a little bit of extra work when you're at that conference to be thinking that way. But, you know, your org has made a great investment in you by sending you to these places. And again, I can't say enough about how Aclia really helped me in my own career. I know I wouldn't be at a director level position where I am now had it not been for my participation. So what insights did you gain specifically from the most recent conference, which was actually in Vancouver again? It's funny, full circle, right? Yeah. You started in Vancouver, you ended in Vancouver. That is one of the little secrets of Aclia is we pick good destinations. Best destinations. <laughs> I think so too. I think so too. The focus of the most recent Vancouver conference, rightly so, was really on wellness and our own mental health. One of the positive things that I think has come out of the pandemic is that we're all a lot more open about the fact that we're struggling and when we're struggling. And we've made that part of our conversations with members of our teams and with our colleagues. And so if there has to be a bright side to things, it's normalizing those conversations. So the Vancouver Planning Committee was really amazing and they brought in quite a few speakers that reflected that. But the one that was the most impactful for me was Myrna McCallum. She did a session on trauma-informed lawyering. She was a local BC attorney, and this has become her passion based on her own situations through her life. But her takeaway was that everybody you meet in the world now as an adult is dealing with some sort of trauma, whether it's recent trauma or childhood trauma, and that permeates everything that happens to them, especially when they're in a time of stress. So if it's opposing counsel, it's when you're dealing with that awful lawyer on the other side, or it's with your clients who are obviously seeing you because there's something not quite right in their lives. One of the poetic things that Myrna said was that you cannot offer what you do not have. And I thought that was really beautiful. And I guess it's the same as that analogy we all hear about putting your own oxygen mask on first and things like that. But it also takes it into 
a different realm. We're dealing with issues that are, are a little more serious. And a lot of that is talking openly with one another about when we're struggling, what our struggles are, and then acknowledging the fact that the people you're encountering are also suffering too. So that hopefully we can start to heal a little bit from all of this collective horror we've been experiencing. So for me, all that focus on mental health and support and strengthening one another through our communities was really valuable. I believe she also has a podcast called The Trauma-Informed Lawyer. Um, she, she does. I've listened to a few and they've been excellent. And doesn't that just feel better to be able to hear people who can offer advice? Like she said, if you're in a conversation with somebody, it's getting really hard and intense. You can help the other person calm down by mirroring that it'll trigger their mirroring neurons. So she said she takes a deep breath, she drops her shoulders, she speaks more calmly, and she said she always notices that the person across from her starts to mirror that and can settle into themselves and be better at telling their stories, which is what she needs to know as a lawyer. Because this is a group of people attending this conference that are responsible, many are lawyers, but not all, that are responsible for the training, professional development, continuing legal education of other lawyers, whether that's at a firm, at an organization, or other providers of continuing legal education. How do you see these individuals bringing it back to their organizations? Do you see a certain theme in how people take this back? I know folks on the programming side are always looking for, like, who's the speaker I can get on this? And Myrna did have suggestions of how to find that. So there's always that approach. And then I think the thing we can all just do individually is start bringing that back to our teams and our planning committees. Until we say it's okay to talk about this and it's necessary, I think it's still stigmatized for a lot of lawyers. And we know that so many of the people we're training, they're kind of a mess. And understandably so, it's a really hard profession. So if we can encounter those folks with compassion and empathy and giving people the benefit of the doubt or assuming good intentions makes a big difference in how we go through our day to day and how we can transfer that to attorneys who are trying to serve. What is one thing you would change about the way attorneys are educated? I don't know how changeable this is, but I think that we fell into a trap with the monetization of the credit hour. Having everything centered around that credit, is it accreditable? And focusing on that rather than on education and competence, I think has been a challenge. So I'd love to see if we could somehow get into smaller bits of information. We know people don't really learn super well over the course of 50 minutes, much less the course of all day. So I'd love to see if we could incorporate smaller chunks of just-in-time learning. Not the just-in-case, which we do in our eight hours of CLE, but saying, like, here's where you can go to get a question answered. Here's that chunk of information, and it's still going to help you meet your competency requirements. But again, it isn't tied to that you know, credit hour. I'd also love to see us be able to move into a place where learning is more personalized. So I'm in the publications realm and none of us have really mastered the way to deliver the content that people need exactly at the time they need it. I think that's a partnership that we need to enter between programs and publications and we need to do it in a way that meets both sets of our requirements that we have in terms of delivering content and doing it, again, in a way that's personalized. I love that, just-in-time learning. Pull from things just in time, but still allowing you to get that competency requirement fulfilled. 
Yeah, because it's how lawyers approach problems. Somebody asks them a question and they need to find the solution. So maybe you're going to pull something back from what you learned at a seminar six months ago, but you're probably going to pop onto some sort of a legal research platform to look for that answer. And we as CLE providers should always be that platform, that first place to turn to when a lawyer needs to answer a question. What is your vision for CLE specifically in the future? Let's talk 10, 20, 30 years from now. What does that look like in your ideal world? It is hitting on that theme of personalization, that it isn't going to be a one size fits all. We know that the newer generations who are going to be coming into the practice of law are going to be expecting this more personalized service. I would love to see the learning and the materials curated better. And then a continuing push toward the betterment of the profession. We've seen that in some of the jurisdictions that have enacted um, DEI accreditation or wellness accreditation. I think we're going to have to keep moving along those lines and being a step ahead rather than reacting to lawyers who are suffering in whatever capacity is happening now, that we're proactive and we start to see the way the world is shaping up and the places where humanity and especially lawyers right now have a need, and then we meet that need. What can we expect to see in future meetings at Aclia? Innovation that we want to see back in our own shops. Sometimes it's not easy to do because Aclia faces the same challenges that those of us doing our jobs face, where it's hard to enact change, it's hard to do things differently, but we have to be willing to experiment. So in the past, we've tried alternative locations. We've also jumped into the completely virtual conference experience a couple of times. Now we've dabbled with hybrid a couple of times. So I think what you'll see in the future is actually modeling the presentation of knowledge and the way that people can take that back to their own shops. Absolutely. And for our listeners, Aclia is a place where various different types of people that are involved in legal education of attorneys come to congregate and to think about the future and how to improve education for attorneys. There's so many different players, right? There's the bar associations, the state bars, the national providers like Lawline. There is also people at law firms, the professional development speakers, right? Professional speakers that are also coming. How does ACLIA create all of this programming that really addresses the needs of all of these different types of attendees? That comes through the conference planning committees. And that group of volunteers gives six to nine months of their lives really planning these conferences, going through vetting ideas that have come in through people volunteering to speak, but then also looking at industry trends and um, places to innovate. Another place that group really focuses on, too, is making sure that we have representation from those different areas who can say, this is what's really happening in my corner of the industry, and we are really struggling with this, and let's do programming around it. So I have to give a lot of credit to the professionals who serve on those planning committees because they are very deeply focused on what ACLIA members need when they come to conferences. Agreed. They are fantastic. So ACLIA is fully volunteer, right? We do have a professional organization that manages the day-to-day, you know, collects the dues, pays the bills, helps with the contracting for conferences, things like that. But the volunteers do all of the work in terms of planning the conferences, running the organization, figuring what initiatives we need, appointing committees to do that work. This year, we just launched the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Committee 
So they're going to be doing specialized programming throughout the year. Again, all volunteer run. What do you think it is about these professionals in all these different areas of continuing legal education? What are the attributes that you've seen that make people want to volunteer so much of their time for the improvement of attorney's education? Well, it's a really specialized situation where we're committed to providing that educational opportunity because we're all professional educators ourselves. So you've already got a built-in group of people who are highly committed to continuing education and adult education. So it's only natural that that same passion would be brought to the volunteer experience. Yes. So Kristen, I want to thank you so much for giving your insights. I also want to thank you for all of your leadership as the president of ACLIA. It was one of the best years of my professional life. These are the most fabulous people on the planet. If anybody's listening who's not already a member of ACLIA, please check us out because what you receive back is just going to be tenfold of what you get. As someone that's been a member for over 10 years, I can absolutely attest that I've gained so much value from attending these conferences. Thank you so much, Kristen. If someone wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way that they can do that? I am great with email at k-h-u-o-t-a-r-i at cobar.org. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you and take care. Thank you, leaders and future leaders for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers Who Lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.